0: Hi, Rob Shank here. You're listening to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, ideas, and legacy of this brave, morally courageous church leader in the time of Adolf Hitler and Nazism in Germany. You know the story how he worked so hard to preserve the moral and spiritual integrity of the Church in Germany and to resist the brutal, violent, hateful regime of the Third Reich, and how he would ultimately give his life for his convictions when he was hanged at Flossenburg concentration camp in April of 1945. This series of episodes is a little different. It's a conversation that I had with another remarkable religious leader in our own time, Rabbi Shoel Praver of Fairfield, Connecticut. He was one of the first spiritual caregivers to arrive on the scene at one of the most unspeakable moments of violence in the history of the United States, maybe in the world. And that was the day when a much too young, mentally ill, deranged, very violent, and heavily armed man entered the otherwise peaceful, joyful, wondrously curious environment of an elementary school in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and brutally took the lives of 20 small children and six adults only after he had killed his own mother in their home. I think you'll find this conversation profoundly moving, deeply insightful, and even hopeful in the wake of such an unspeakable tragedy. This event that took place in that little village can never be forgotten, never minimized, never excused, never rationalized, never dismissed, and most certainly never repeated. So I hope you'll take the time to listen to the entirety of these conversations in a series I call, The Story Behind the Rabbi at Sandy Hook. Thanks for listening. I'm in Fairfield, Connecticut, a very fair place indeed. I lived in Connecticut when I was a kid, and I I have nothing but good memories and associations with the state of Connecticut. And uh, here in the Praver home with Rabbi Shoal Praver and his lovely family, and I, I think I've met all of them now. You have? Okay, (laughs) including including the (laughs) four-footed member of the family, Philly, who you may hear from uh, when he saunters in and and licks his chops and wants a (laughs) belly rub, which I was just giving him in abundance. Um, But Rabbi Shul Praver is a friend, Uh, he's an author, he is a chaplain, prison chaplain, which I think is very, very important and impressive because it's not uh, your usual uh, religious career. Uh, But you're also something else. Um, You're a philosopher, you're a very deep thinker, you're a very reflective soul, and I've benefited from your insights already, but we're talking specifically about a moment in time. Mm -hmm. Well, not such a moment... It was probably too too many moments. Yeah. But we left off in the last podcast episode uh, where you are in a room, in a firehouse, mm-hmm. near a school. It's December 14th, 2012. Correct. A moment, it's just too too cheap to say, but if we think about the reason it was originally said, well, it it might compare. A a moment that will live in infamy, Mm -hmm. or should live in infamy, and that was a terrible day at an elementary school in Newtown, Actually, is the school itself in Sandy Hook or Newtown? Is that clear Newtown is me? the
1: town, and, and you might, being from New York, as yep. we are, you might think of Sandy Hook as the village. Okay. Yeah, but it's under the incorporation of Newtown. Right.
0: So, Sandy Hook Elementary School. And um, just take us back there to that room. You're standing so. there as a rabbi to, at that time, to a congregation and some of your congregants are in that room.
1: Right, uh, one of my, my congregants, the Posner's, are there, um, and uh, I am um, connecting with them and, and, and becoming their chaplain at that moment in time. Um, as far as, you know, what they said, and, you know, that, that we can't go into that because of the, you know, professional standards of, of, course. of chaplaincy. Um, that would be, you know, like, ther- you know, a therapist saying, you know, what the client said.
0: Christians say, under the stall. Yeah, it's it's private.
1: But as far as me, you know, going yes. through the experience. So, you know, in general, there's the, the comatose, you know, uh, retreating response to unspeakable things, and and the or the outward, you know, angry, weeping, protesting. That's and this what is I all saw.
0: Happening in that room.
1: Yeah, and that's what I saw. You know. And
0: you're essentially a first responder. You're on the scene because you're a member of the clergy, you are a religious, uh, a, a, a religious caregiver, provider in the community. Mm-hmm. You're, again, using Christian parlance, a shepherd of souls, mm-hmm. and you're just responding because there's a need. In fact, you were told you are
1: needed. I was told and I that's why eating. you show up right now, I had a certain bit of that pastoral counseling in the practical rabbinics back in Jerusalem. now I'm you know uh, clinically trained you know years later um but you know, I could see that somehow my natural instincts um were good um I didn't try to fix stuff um, I was just there to absorb and to listen. Um, some and I, even when there was a dialogue, I think that it was um, it landed well. You know, when I used um, uh, you know when I moved from receptive power, as we say, to, you know, um, agential power, um, that it uh, landed well. It was more Socratic, and you know, um, how do you feel about? Now there is one thing that um, Veronique let me say, and I asked her um and i said uh, do you believe in heaven and she said absolutely because this is hell <laughs> this is a very very eloquent woman and uh and that's it uh every anything else that was said I, i'm not authorized to say but um there's a lot right in there. Um, And so there is that uh, feeling that that, uh, if there is heaven, then we can make it through. And that's what I call the spiritual morphine. And as as chaplains, you do want to get to what um, people turn to for strength. And if you don't want to impose any um, Faith, but if there is a faith that the um, the patient or the congregation, uh, parishioner has told you about, you you might that might be a reasonable invitation to ask them about uh, what they think about these kinds of things, and um, an open kind of question. And if they go there, then you can go. They're giving you uh, the contract. You're
0: essentially traveling with them. Not right. asking them to come and travel to you.
1: Yeah. Or if they say, "No, I don't want to talk about that," then of course you don't go there. Yes. But um, a lot of people do want to go there, and and that is um, spiritual morphine. And um, because you know, Marx said that religion was the opium of the masses. And my father was um, you know a socialist thinker. Um, in that era. But my commentary was that, well, if religion makes you feel good, it doesn't mean necessarily that, that it's not true. What makes you feel good doesn't exclude it from being true. It could feel good and it can be true. <laughs> yes. And so that um, there is uh, the application of spiritual morphine that is given and thinking of that you'll see him again. Yes. In In the spiritual world, that this is. Just the the door, as we say, uh, it might even be a Greek word. Um, the corridor between the real world. This is the dream. The real world is uh, the heaven, right? Um, it's an upside-down tree, right?
0: And I, 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 I'm sorry to be caught here for a moment, but I'm thinking of my own experience in consoling individuals and families mm-hmm. in their moment of terrible grief mm-hmm. uh, when there's been a death mm-hmm. or as i'm working with them and preparing the funeral service and then yeah presiding at the funeral and all of that and i'm doing that with one person or i'm doing it with two or maybe as many as five or perhaps a dozen right but to be in this moment where the loss is so enormous so staggering so uh, painful excruciating numbing uh, what what words what superlatives what adjectives apply it, you it's run uh, out of words so quickly it's a terrible thing you know and and, and, and you're being tested yeah. in that moment as as a consoler as Mm -hmm. a
1: a a shepherd to deal with the impossible yes there's there's, there's nothing possible about this there's nothing it's impossible and you can't fix it Um, but you can listen you must have done a lot of listening you know all the good that's happened is forever. That's a Frankel approach. That all the good that's happened is locked in. No, you can't take it away. It's happened. It's permanent. It's in your heart. There's that. There's a um, certain kind of approach. He puts it in fancy language. But that's a powerful concept that all the memories, all of the um, great things that happen you know, with people that we love, is like in a jewelry box in your heart, and you have the key, mm. and you could open it whenever you want, mm. and no, it can never be stolen. Mm. This is comforting. Generally, if you have an except, you find an exception. Yeah, okay, so be a smart chaplain and go on a different course. But generally, what what
0: what's wh- What sustained you in that moment? Uh, I mean, as you're saying, it's an impossible situation. The scale of it, the enormity of it, it is beyond, I'm sure, what was ever suggested in your rabbinical training, your rabbinical formation, even in your professional um, training in, in counseling and psychology. Uh, you know, did anyone come into a room and say, someday you're going to be in a room
1: <laughs> filled
0: right. with parents whose children have just been murdered in a classroom? It would sound so absurd. You'd right. say, that's, that's so hypothetical. No, yeah. It's, that it's happen, nonsense. Right. But this is reality for you. You right. are really there in that moment. What sustained you in your own spirit to, to survive uh, it? Yeah.
1: It's a prophetic voice that starts to ring, to be honest with you without sounding crazy. There is a prophetic voice that starts to ring. And that voice came in, 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 in words. Uh, we will birth a culture of peace. Um... I'm here with you now for a reason. You know, things come to you that you don't know why those uh, words come. You know, I wrote it in, the, in my account, um, which I'll, I'll be self-publishing. I, I've been trying to publish this thing ever since I finished it a couple of years ago. It's the uh, account of why, uh, it's account, uh, the, the rabbi's account of the shooting at Sandy Hook, the anecdotal things that I experienced, everything that I'm permitted to say um, or something that was in the public record already is uh, in the first part of the book. Then it's my um, uh, second part is why I think it happened and why it is happening in our society, because something's up, uh, particularly in American society. And there's a reason for it. which is beyond the scope of this conversation. Maybe we could talk more. and, and Well, when you publish that, we will, please, yes. I may
0: ask. And do you have a working title for it? Yeah, The Newtown Effect. The Newtown Effect. So just for our podcast family, we'll keep you informed about the schedule of publishing on that. I know you're thinking like I am right now. I want to read that yeah so and maybe i'll sit with you again or we'll do it on the phone and we'll talk about
1: that it's Uh, all written i mean i got as far as getting an agent which is hard to get and i tried to you know publish it for a number of years and so now i've turned the corner as I, i mentioned you know when we were driving over here that i'm going forward and i'm publishing under uh rabbi rock media press and um so I have about four And folks will be able to get that on Amazon. Yeah, be all Amazon, okay. self-publishing, websites, yep. um, houses of worship, that kind of thing. Um, but the prophetic voice wakes up um, in these kinds of situations, and that becomes a, a hope for something in the future that will be uh, more beautiful, and I think that's what prophets do in, in times of um, great, great tragedy, that you, you need to give that uh, prophetic voice of how it can be. And, and, and I'm not trying to say that I'm a prophet. Because I think it's a human um, reaction of what we all have a prophetic voice that um, speaks at different times. Maybe that comes out more when you, when you are subjected to a tragedies such as uh, Sandy Hook, um, but we all have, have that, um, that prophetic voice, you know, the American Indians, what did they dream, the Quana Parker um, of the uh, Comanche, I believe, tribe, you know, spoke about a time when the, uh, you know, the buffalo will come back again, and, and, um, and the grass is, the, the hills will be filled with grass, green grass again. You know, projecting a positive, utopian image at a time of genocide. All the prophets, the greatest prophets, you know, come at times of a great crisis in the society. When their lives are in danger, when they're in prison, when they're in the uh, midbar. The word midbar means the word. The word comes in the wilderness. Um. So, but. It's not a, uh, a fantasy, you know. maybe uh, the buffalo will come back in a different way, maybe the buffalo are a, uh, a symbol of uh, thriving, you know, um, that we need to reinterpret the, uh, the vision because the vision was given at a time and a place and a setting, but it has a broader shelf value, a broader meaning for the generations. And that uh, new town does not want to be remembered as the town of the tragedy. We want to be remembered as the town that gave birth to a new and kinder world. That's what we want Newtown to be. And sometimes things break before new things grow. If you didn't know what happens to a seed, you would think it was terrible when it cracked. And then when it sprouted a green shoot, only then would you understand that it wasn't terrible that it cracked. It's hard to say things like that that to general prophetic concepts to people that lost loved ones. So that's why sometimes I hold things like that back, but I, I think it's true though, as, as sad as it is, and nobody wants to be that the, the victim of the broken seed from which that was used the the broken shard. You know, nobody thinks of themselves as, as being the shard, the broken seed that had to occur to bring about a uh, seismic change in the society. There's People. a gospel passage that comes to mind when Jesus said, "Unless a
0: corn of wheat fall into the ground and die." Mm. It, it, it cannot give mm-hmm. growth, right? Uh, it can't give life. hmm and it would seem to apply here. But what a delicate balance for you in that moment to be listening, uh, absorbing the pain and anguish of others, and speaking prophetically, doing both. That-
1: I'm not speaking it. it. It's coming down to me. She's telling me about, and then it's coming when, when I'm looking at her. That's when it's happening. I'm writing it down later. I see. I see. Because I I couldn't say that to her then. Okay. Maybe I wouldn't ever say that to her. Right.
0: I see. I see. It's being born in that moment. Yeah. But not being delivered. Right. It's being conceived, but not delivered in that moment.
1: Yeah, a lot of things are going on at the same time. So I could be, ah, ah, ah with you at the same time that something else is speaking to me.
0: Wow! I, I will tell you, it's exhausting to just listen to you recount it. <laughs> I just think, I know the demands of, of spiritual service and care and ministry, but to think of it in tectonic dimension, right. and, and there you are. So, what happens? In that room and after that room,
1: I think of it as like you're the shock absorber. There's an energy that happens. You know, I mean, now the governor comes back, and he makes the announcement, and he can't even say the words. He can't say the D word or the K word. He says, "I'm sorry that um, you will not be reunited with your children tonight." And the people, you know, calling out, you know, what does that mean, what does that mean, you know? And he doesn't change the line. And then, and he has to leave. You know, just, I am sorry, I'm sorry. And, um, and he leaves. And he leaves. But you remain. All of the um, chaplains remain, and, and um, it goes into a rapid-fire prayer just the, in, the, in the manner in which we are lined up. Just, that's just the way it went. Uh, one person started, and then the next person, next person, next person. And then the scattering out the anger. No, they, nah, that's ridiculous. That's BS. He just ran away into the woods. What do we do now? It was so hard to bring her into the world. And now this, and you know, different things that you're walking around and you're hearing. And um, there's there's no words that are spoken. When you're just listening at that point, it's not the time to talk and you're just, Body language, absorbing it like uh, somebody jumps on a uh, bomb <laughs> to absorb the, the the impact. Not you know, or even if they didn't jump, that they, they were just there, and that you know, uh, just helped a little bit that someone was there, a spirit you know, a spiritual presence. They weren't alone when at these terrible moments you know husbands and wives you know embracing and the things that they saying to each other and, you know what do we do now And why our baby you know she was so and it, it was such a beautiful day uh, she was wearing a pink dress you know they, these are the kinds of things that people say you know um it sounds Like what is wearing a pink dress or being, you know, but it's, it, it interrupts sort of expected order of things. Yes. So, you know, it was a good day and it was a beautiful day. And usually when it's a beautiful day, things go fine. And what the heck happened today, you know?
0: And how many... People, are we talking about at this point? Roughly, how many are in that room? The the
1: twenty, um, the, the uh, it's the twenty.
0: The parents of, it's all the parents.
1: Yes, yeah, because they pretty much know. Um, you remember from that? Well, well, it was another segment where the first assessment. Yes. I mean, it's usually pretty accurate, right? Like if. Right. You don't see the kid being picked up by the parent. You know, then you know that the team of. Firemen and um you know emergency workers um took their bodies to the hospital yes um because where else would they be so yes. so but they have to get more confirmation before they make public announcements um, so that whole time and, and you know there's a little bit of hope, but not a lot. most people know that they're just waiting. During our
0: whole conversation here, you introduced one of your congregants to us, a firefighter. Right. uh, Who was preparing to to celebrate a great moment with his own children. Right. In the uh, bat mitzvah, the, the spiritual, religious coming of age of his daughter. Mm-hmm. And you were part of that preparation, and he was called away from that for right. this right? terrible event. Where is he? Have, was he in the room? Anywhere? Was he around, I the, saw I him. say, the
1: firehouse? I saw him, yeah. And we spoke a little bit. He walked by. The first, if you look back, they, they, used to, they thought it was two shooters. And mm-hmm. We just had a, a quick um, chit-chat you know, conversation, like, you know... Um, you know, oh, they caught the guy. Um, but it wasn't him. There was only one shooter. It just happened to be jogging or something. So he's still
0: there on the scene. He's or still, at yeah. least was moving through the scene.
1: He still um, is in um, Newtown. And um, I still uh, am, uh, you know, Facebooking with his children and celebrating mm-hmm. um, with comments mm-hmm. about their achievements in college and, mm-hmm. and all the different things that they're, they've done and... And they've done a lot. Um He must have removed
0: the bodies of some of
1: the He um The children saw it. The victims. Yeah. I'm not sure what he did mm. exactly. But um, he did um see it. Um and most of the Kid. fire fire firefighters um uh were no longer able to continue with their work. I see. Only a few um Remained. I'm not sure if he's still in the um, because the of the trauma. Yeah, it was that they experienced. It was kind of like, wow, I, I, I need to go to Hawaii for the next three years or something. I think,
0: <laughs> I think sometimes we see these people as somehow superhuman, or maybe even just kind of non-human in the sense that they're just functionaries. They arrive, they manage the situation for us, but they too are human, like you are human, like every Human, there was human.
1: Oh, you want to talk about human? Um, they're very, very human, and the uh, requirement of them, you know, being stoic and, and pushing down those emotions so that they can serve the general public is uh, something very, very, you know, praiseworthy. To be strong um, in a, at a time when they, you know. Could very easily be weak. Um, not that their emotions are weak, but they um, never are. Your emotions weak, but but they are in a special role to be strong for another person to lean on, and 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 to at least project a um, a, a uh, image of strength um, that's very comforting to to people that are falling apart. Um, but. Don't think that that doesn't have a tremendous, tremendous impact on the uh, first responder. Um, and you as a first responder, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be traumatized. This, this, is a lot of, this is a whole field that needs to be studied. Some people can go, you know, person A and person B can experience the same trauma, and one will be traumatized and one will not be traumatized. It has to do with your nervous system. It has to do with um, y- uh, your spiritual practice. Um, all kinds of complicated things. Um, some people don't have the temperament, um, and if you don't, then don't you know? Be a, uh, a relief worker. You know, at tragedies, it's not a it's not a sin or, or a deficit. It it's about your nervous system. I can't um, go. Um, you know, I'm not volunteering for um, these kinds of um, chaplaincies, because I know how hard it was to do the one that I did um, do. And yet you serve as a prison chaplain,
0: yes. which I can see many, and I and probably among them, uh, who, if that was presented to me, I probably would decline. Uh, even though I have a great heart for people in prison, and because of my protest work in the past, I've been in prison, I've been a prisoner, so I I feel very deeply. And yet at the same time, you have to be matched to that in every way. And whether or not you were matched in that moment, you were there and you served, and it must have been the longest
1: day was the longest day, and it's weird that I, I don't think of uh, prison chaplaincy as um, a trauma, even though there is some trauma there. I've been it's in a such very tra- <laughs> intense environment, <laughs> but it seems like child's play compared to this. You know, um, in the f- one incident that I was there, when someone was um, doing something violent in a in a um, block that I was visiting, hmm. the guards and the, the Lieutenants and deputy warden remarked, "The rabbi was cu- uh, cool as a cucumber, <laughs> because it was like you know. Okay, so he picked up a stick and he's trying to you know whack a guy over the head with a stick, and then the guard charged him and took him to the floor, and the stick fell out of his hand. And I picked up the stick and held it on the side for safety until more reinforcement came. Easy peasy."
0: <laughs> well, as you say. <laughs> depends on how you're built. I can see plenty <laughs> saying, I've had it. That's the end of my chaplain work. I'm, I'm going back to the congregation to the arguments over the color of carpet. But right. uh, there was no escaping December Fourteenth.
1: Not for me 2012. I was asked to be there. And I had, you know, for all intents and purposes, I, I needed to answer that call. And you served,
0: and I imagine one day slipped into two, slipped into three. It, it didn't end when midnight, it when changes the midnight you. bell rang.
1: It, it changes you um, completely. So the, the prison ministry became a part of my healing, that I need to, you know, gosh darn it, I need to lower violence in the society. I need to, There's a sense, I think a lot of people share that Life was taken. Now we need to um, save lives. That somehow, that's the um, kapora, the the atonement. Um, and you know, even in the, the Jewish faith, if you steal, you know, a cow and you um, slaughter the cow, you got to pay back, you know, four or five cows. So I say that about human beings when life is and blood is shed. We have to you know save five lives for every life that was taken. But saving lives is a tough business because you save them so you don't really you can't keep score. You don't really know who you're saving. But if you're moving in a certain direction and you're you know helping people and um, getting them to think in a, a more uh, spiritual way, Uh, about the sanctity of life, um, about their own self-esteem of what their life is worth. Start with that. Um, You could be pretty sure that you're saving some lives, but you'll never really know. But you don't do it for the reward. You have to do it, um, and that gets into the the Love Zap book, which will come out. You only love Zap people when you do it in absolute humility. No uh, reward, no hope for reward. Yet the rewards are very great. It's a paradox. You have to um, just do it uh, for the sake of doing it. And in, in the Torah, we say Lishmah for, for the name, for God's name, for God's holy name. Just do it, do the right things. Be God's messenger, be God's um, tool. You know, let God work through you. Um, don't try um, to make uh, a name or an honor for yourself, even when you might be making a name and an honor for yourself because those are necessary for the ministry. But the moment that you actually stop doing the um, avodah, the the um, ministry, at, in the acts of ministry, in absolute humility, for the sake of God's name, um, that's the moment that that the, the it's the spirit's gone. It's all gone. I I have an abstract sense of it through uh, quantum physics that, you know, light is a is is a uh, a flow. It is it's a uh, wave. But when you try to uh, measure it and view it, it turns into a particle. Mm -hmm. The moment that we look at ourselves as ah, huh, you know, I did this, I did that. You turn into a particle. You're no longer part of the. The way you're no longer connected with the bigger picture. So even as we're building ministries and we have to have websites, and we publish books and we put our names on them and we call ourselves doctor and, and rabbi and reverend. Okay, okay, that's just you know what you have to do in the world of you know um, society, right? To, in order to get an opportunity to speak to people, right? To, in order to speak in this podcast, right? Before a congregation, but you know. It's just nonsense. It's just the nonsense that we have to do um, as being part of the human tribe. But the actual work m- must be done uh, for the sake of God only. That to be, um, because we love God's love, that we connect with that impulse of God that God has to bring life into the world. To give with the spirit of life in a person. That's um, God's love. And that's so alluring and it's so delicious and it's so bl- blissful and so pleasurable. Mm-hmm. That's why we like religion, you know, because that's the real, that's the Shekhinah, that's the, uh, the the presence. So just do it for all that good stuff, right? Not for anything else. So, so it's a hard dance, you know, you have to do the, um, the public, uh, face of it, but um, uh, to be a real servant of God, real minister.
0: And you did do the public face of it, even in the aftermath of this. The, 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 The giving to me is almost incomprehensible, is how much you must have given of yourself in the days, the weeks, the months that followed. I know you presided at at least one funeral. Correct. One of the children. And your people were so deeply, uh, whether they were traumatized or not, they felt the impact of the trauma. The whole community did here. Yes. The nation was feeling it. And in all the aftermath, the President of the United States shows up here. Yes. And -hmm. you offer a prayer. Mm hmm on the stage with the President, as the entire world is watching, not just the nation, but the world is watching this. Uh, live, in real time, in raw mm-hmm. emotion. We were talking a little bit before we sat down together with the microphones, and yeah. you just mentioned how raw this thing was. there's no production. There was no rehearsal available or to be done. And what people were seeing was the real thing, even the President of the United States break down and, and weep. And you're yes. on that stage. So there you are, the rabbi called upon at a very solemn moment in the national and international spotlight, still giving of yourself, walking that delicate balance and right. paradox. Right. But can you tell us about the aftermath? What was it like? Well,
1: first, to be you know brutally honest with you, it's you know, <laughs> it's it's very um, gratifying you know when when um, all of these news um, outlets you know CNN, MSNBC, ABC, everybody, the whole world wants to um, you know Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. You know, I'm going to be honest here, you know, because I, I'm into clinical chaplaincy, so we get into you know, what's really going on, right? So there is um, an ego that we have to be careful of when we're in public surface, which I'm more aware of now afterwards, you know. So um, And then there's a phenomenon of where the media comes and lifts you up, wants to hear everything you have to say, and then spits you up. So you were like, you know, <laughs> you know, slice bread you know, you're a gold for three, four, five months, you know, and they're always, uh, you're always on. And, and it is gratifying. You have to be, we have to be honest with ourselves. Yes. And I don't th- think there's a person that wouldn't be gratified by it unless they're, you know, terribly uh, shy or something. Um, and so that's a lot to um, keep in check. And then there's a certain, you know, psychological thing that happens when you are spit out, you know. Yes, when they're done. When they're done with you. Right. It's no longer a story. Right. And then there could be like, oh, you know, now you only want me, you know, to connect you with them, you know. Um, and you're not even interested in this story about how they're rebuilding their lives, you know. Yes. Now, this, we're talking about what happened, but for a different reason. There's a minister, a minister, a minister reason. It's not just gore, you know, for the sake of. Uh, and I want to get there. Right. Soon, because that's really kind of the
0: whole purpose of the exercise. Um, right, is that this thing is not over; it's it will never over. be over. It may not provide an audience for media, right. maybe not even for this podcast. I know Who plenty knows? of people yeah. say, "I don't want to hear about that." Right. I, 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 that's. I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to right. listen to anything about that. Right. So this may not be our most popular podcast for that reason. this is We're talking about human pain and anguish and suffering and ugliness. I, I hope what people take away is not that, right? but what you've alluded to several times now, and that's the hope that can come out of it, the good that can actually come out of it, how generous this community has been because right. they could have retreated into bitterness, sullenness, into anguish, saying, pardon my French, the hell with the world, you came in here, you know, something terrible happened, and and we will just collapse into that. And you're saying, if if Sandy Hook is known for anything now, it's for things like Sandy Hook Promise. Mm -hmm. I was with the folks just before coming to see you. Yeah. Last night in Washington, D.C., where I'm yes, located, yes. a whole bunch of your folks came to Washington to visit the offices of members of Congress and to say we need to change policy when it comes to firearms and ammunition right. in this country and uh, red flag laws and, and all the rest of it yep. uh, th- that will help uh Save lives, and and not just the lives of the victims we generally think of, but of suicide victims, of correct, of the perpetrators whose lives are destroyed in their act of violence as much as anything else. Yeah, that's right. All of this, and of and what what the community here has become known for, and I think with your able assistance, as a spiritual. Uh, leader here is hope, that hope can actually come out of these kinds of mammoth tragedies.
1: We can magnify hope as long as we keep our own hope alive. We, we can do it. Um, it's hard. It's a big job. Um, and I have, you know, very, very uh, strong, uh, thought out ideas about everything that you mentioned just now, which you know we could get to at some point but you know it, just to kind of give it a, a general thing <clears throat> it's about uh why i reached out to you okay so i was coming from you know the the left you know um liberal community and you were in the evangelical i wanted to reach out to you because i know that we both cry in equal measure of tears for people that died that day. I remember our first conversations about that. I remember our first prayers together about that. Exactly. And And I thank you for that. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I think that's my approach. That um, we have to come together um, just in a nutshell without going to great length. I don't think we could change it alone on uh, on only one side of the aisle. I think that we're going to have to reach across the aisle, and that means humanizing the other. Okay, and you know, when you really talk with the people on the right, you know they have a reason for the the, re, the re, you know their um, positions, and and it is well thought out, and they have their concerns. You know, when we talk about the firearm, you know. They, you know the arguments on both sides sure that's just I don't have to say them all but you know S- still most of my colleague friends
0: are heavily armed yeah are armed and heavily armed and they keep firearms in their homes and on their persons and in their vehicles and
1: and they're probably very responsible with their
0: firearms they are very mm-hmm. very responsible people and they're not the problem no they're not that's right that's right and as we know I mean both sides perpetrate Uh, Right. And maybe this is a good segue here. Sure. Do I dare ask you this question, Rabbi? Okay, Um, yeah. Are there lessons out of December 14th, 2012, Sandy Hook, and what came after? Are are there lessons in this?
1: I mean, do you want to speak on the practical or the spiritual? any direction you want to take it. Okay, so you were at a um, an event and those are my people. And I want safety. I want to save lives. I don't think we make any changes, though, when we Don't reach across the aisle, and really listen to one another. So I'll just give you one anecdotal thing. There was a demonstration. It was in front of the um, the shooting academy, the sports shooting academy in Newtown, which is the second most powerful. um, Maybe I'm getting the name wrong, but it's the second most powerful um, gun lobby in the country, behind the NRA. And. So we, it came, and we uh, protested in front of them, and we got the cameras to take a picture of us doing it and demanding, you know, changes. And something was wrong about what happened, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Everybody else got in their cars, and they left after the um, the event. And I'm sitting in my car and I'm saying what's wrong what you know what's missing here and I pray and again that little voice get out of your car and go knock on the door and I go and knock on the door I think the guy's name was John John hi it's Rabbi Praver I know I, I was here before, but I don't think anybody asked you to have a conversation. Um, do you think we could talk? And um, first, he, you know, I didn't really want to have the conversation. And so I had to kind of like, I get it. They, they, they made you into the bad guy and it was not nice. What just took place. Uh, I have a different approach. Would, would you be willing? To, can we just sit down and talk a little bit? And so i go and i'm talking with john and john is saying um you know rabbi we've given away you know two million safety locks on guns you know our, our whole thing is about being you know safe in this sport in in the use of the firearm and you know we uh represent safety but we do like you know firearms that's where with that's what we do and uh you know I don't think that they don't they don't really understand that you know we can work together. And we want safety as well. And uh, yes, I'm available to talk. <clears throat> when I brought this I was so excited about this breakthrough that I had with this individual when I brought it back to the liberal camp they just said, "Oh, but you know 400,000 of those safety locks that they gave were deficient." And I was like, and that's it, <laughs> so we shouldn't, we shouldn't talk anymore. So here's a, here's a guy that's a very powerful voice for the firearm and um, you know his level of training is very, very strong. And that word training, by the way, is the word that was where we could meet the liberals and the um, conservatives we could meet on that word. Put regulation, um, put reform aside. Let's talk training, um, a different ethos you know, a, a safer, um, a responsible uh, interaction with the firearm, okay? There are places that practice in this way. Um, and and the left has to also know where the problem exists. You know, th- these um, people that are affiliated with these organizations are not, um, um, you know, generally not doing these, these shootings, but they're, you know, advocating um, for rights, 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 um, without any of the, you know, well-regulated militia that is called for it. It also, in the former part, the first part of the amendment, um, because of a fear, There's, there's a fear there. And that's what's not being talked about. And the fear is the Hunger Games scenario. That's the fear. The power of the state, the federal government, and the disempowerment of the um, citizen, common citizen, the military-style weapon that is showing up in police departments across the country is very frightening, for good reason. So, so I can understand um, both sides, and we actually have a way of solving it. It's regulation is not the enemy; it's who the regulator is. That's it. It's that old big state you know, big government, small government divide between the two aisles. And that if, uh, well, in a nutshell, the regulator can't, the, the right will never accept the regulation being the federal government. You know your people. Sure I do. That, that's it. But what if the regulator was a national guard? that report to the governors of states. Now it's in the state's power. Let the federal give a general guideline, general guideline, and let the states um, in conformity with those guidelines. And Bloomberg liked this idea, by the way. I pitched it to him five years ago. He liked it, his team didn't like it, and that's where it, it died. But let the states, you know, Alaska is different than Florida, and, and, and um, uh, New York City is different than Wyoming uh, in the wilderness. Different kinds of guns could be appropriate in different regions. I think it's dinner time. Dinner time. Um, <laughs> uh, but
0: before we get to a dinner break,
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you make an excellent point there, and when I'm out west, I'll, I'll often say, you know, Uh, How many people have firearms in your homes?
1: Mm -hmm. Almost
0: everybody. Yeah. How many have ever had an accidental discharge
1: Mm -hmm.
0: when you're cleaning your firearm? Yeah. A lot of people. Mm -hmm. So, well, the result of an accidental discharge in Wyoming is very different from an accidental discharge in Bronx, New York. That's right. Because chances are it's going to put a hole in the wall or the ceiling, but it's not going to kill the baby on the other side of the wall. That will happen in New York. So, uh, but how is it that Newtown Sandy Hook taught you that lesson of listening
1: well, I to start, the other? I started out with the organization, you know, these different organizations that formed. And then I went and I talked to different people in in Congress. And the, the thing I learned, I began to see that You know, my cultural attitude towards the firearm being from the Northeast um, is quite different. Um, And I began to learn more and study more. And the more that I was open and loving, right, the more that I realized, you know, hey, this is a guy I could work with, but he's afraid. And so um, what he's afraid of is, is and not too many people like to say it because it makes us sound, or us or them, um, sound paranoid or something. But I, I do think that it's it's the um, the uh, the Hunger Games scenario of somehow uncontrolled power in, of the state gets out of control, yeah, you know, out of control, and and
0: there, there was a time when people on the left were very afraid of the federal government mm-hmm. and very suspicious of the federal government. Right. Particularly of agencies like the FBI and mm-hmm. the CIA. Right. And others, clandestine security agencies and the ATF and others. I mean, it's not just one side being afraid or the other. We each have our fears and they shift and change. And this is one of the reasons I think we can't forget Newtown and Sandy Hook and right. December 14th. 2012, not only because precious lives were lost, families uh, were devastated, a community and a nation and maybe a world, traumatized, at least scandalized right. by such a thing. And the magnitude of it just can't be compared to anything else. It's not just another mass shooting. Right. There's something the age, a quality and the- to it, yes, an age, a texture, a, a meaning, a, a magnitude that is is just not easily compared with something else. It's every every such tra- such tragedy is unique, but this is unique in a unique way. Yes. So, and 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 the lessons that it can teach us and the and what can come out of it i think are equally unique they are unique also and that's yeah. why i can't wait to read your book yeah, yeah. Uh, and for folks to respond to these podcasts and i hope you will i hope you'll post your own comments send me emails whatever um, let's have a, a national conversation, <laughs> Rabbi Shaul Praver. You've been enormously generous with your time. Your family has been even more generous. <laughs> They're in the kitchen trying to live their lives while you and I hold this house hostage to the to the recorder. So you've been all the Praver family has just been. So kind and generous. Don't forget Philly too. to our podcast family, and 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 Philly here dog. is is the, the the beautiful dog who gave so much as as a um, please the term again a comfort dog comfort dog a new time uh, comfort dog during the time of trauma here, and it's just all such a beautiful package. And you've shared it with us in our podcast family, and we'll always be grateful to you for that. And you're going to hear from Rabbi Praver again, because we're going to sit down and talk about his upcoming book, "Love That, which I just love, and I read (laughs) it. I read the pre-release manuscript, and it's just beautiful. And and you'll think that when we talk about it, and later when you read the book. And this rabbi can be your rabbi, too. So let's adopt him as our (laughs) rabbi, Rabbi Praver, our... Bonhoeffer Institute family rabbi, thank you thank for you, all the Reverend time. Thank
1: you And my friend and colleague, I uh, really admire you. Thank you for everything you do. As they say south of the border, igualmente. <laughs> We're in a mutual admiration society.
0: <laughs> thank you, my Shalom. friend.